0: The voice that you've blessed him with, and more importantly, Lord, even for the heart that you've given him, the words that minister to our spirit. And so, Lord, some of us just need to hear that today that we need to hold fast and hold fast in, in very difficult times and hold fast in good times. And so, Father, I pray that as we open up your book now and talk about what we really can do to, to win more battles than lose when it comes to our walk with you, I pray that you'd give us insight. I pray you touch our hearts as well as our minds and that, Father, as you reveal things to us that we need to live life on your terms, that, Lord, our commitment back is that we will live this. We will follow you, we will engage you Monday through Saturday, just not on Sunday. And so I pray, Lord, that you speak to our hearts now in Christ's name, amen. And so as we are well in the football season right now, both NFL as well as in college ball, it doesn't take a lover of the sport to know that the key to a really good football team is to have a tough defense combined with a spectacular offense. It's true. That's what it really takes. Uh, Vince Lombardi, one of the great original NFL coaches who led the Green Bay Packers to the first two Super Bowl wins, uh, took over the Packers in 1959 when they had just come off a, a terrible season. And at the beginning of their very first practice, the story is told that Lombardi went into the locker room there and he held up a football like this And he uttered five words that have gone down uh, in infamy as far as football legends go. He he, he held up the football and he said, gentlemen, this is a football. (laughs) And and then he explained to them the fundamentals of the sport, how to get the ball from one end of the field to the other, and then on defense, how to prevent the ball from getting from one end of the field to the other. And, And he took the Packers back to the basics. He took them back to the fundamentals and he said, this season we're going to reteach you how to play football. He took his team back to what having a tough defense combined with a spectacular offense would entail. And as a result of that, he would galvanize the Packers in the early 60s to become one of the greatest football teams ever. The key to, to winning great football is to have a tough defense combined with a spectacular offense. Everybody who's into football knows this. Now why is that important this morning? It's simple, because it works the same way in the Christian life. That is, as you and I are having this discussion last week, now continuing this week, on what it takes to be a winner in the Christian life. What it takes to win battles more than lose battles is that God is going to come down and say it's all about having a good defense combined with a really good offense. Or to put it this way, if you don't have a tough defense combined with a spectacular offense, both of these working in tandem with each other, then give up on trying to be victorious in the Christian life. So last week we began part one of this message when we noted a couple of things from the book of Galatians, the book we're studying this year at our church. And so let me give you a very, very quick review of what we learned last week in case you weren't here or in case you've forgotten, just so that we can all get up uh, on the same page. But we noted last week, right off the bat, that there's a war within the soul of every Christ follower. There's a war within the soul of every Christ follower. It's the flesh versus the spirit. That's the words the Bible uses. The fallen part of our nature that doesn't want to follow God, and we all have that, versus the Holy Spirit, whom the Bible affirms lives inside every believer in Jesus Christ. And the Spirit woos us to follow God. And so that's the nature of the battle within, that there's a part of us that doesn't want to rely on God versus the Holy Spirit who's telling us to. And we noted further last week that the Bible affirms that ultimately we're all going to win the war for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, but that that doesn't mean we're going to win every battle. And that's why Christians still struggle with sin and lots of things that they struggle with. And that's why we need ongoing forgiveness and grace. But then we kept off last week by noting a second thing, and that is that victory or defeat is most seen in evident fruit. So if you want to know whether you're having a a, a winning or losing battle any time in the Christian life, it's going to be seen in evident fruit around you. And we took a look at the lists that Galatians 5 gives us. The works of the flesh, the negative fruit, the fruits of the spirit, the positive fruit. And we noted that when it comes to our thoughts, our emotions, our will, and even our relational interactions, that the Bible says there's lots of things around us that can tell us whether we're doing well or not. It's not all that hard. And so once we've established all of this, the nature of the war within, the flesh versus the spirit, and then the barometer of evident fruit, the only question left for you and I to wrestle with is how does one experience victory? How do you and I function in the Christian life in such a way that we can win more battles or not? What is the secret that God has for us? And it's to this that we turn to this morning. And it's here where a tough defense combined with a spectacular offense comes into play. And so let me give you the principle uh, up front. It's our third point continuing last week's discussion. It's really the last three verses of Galatians chapter 5. Really three arguably of the most important verses in all of the Bible and then we're gonna apply this after I give you the principle by following the text into the realm of offense and defense. You're gonna like this. So here's the overriding principle that Galatians gives us if we want to win more battles and that is that the pathway to victory is accessed by faith while implemented by action. I know that sounds so simple. It's going to be harder than you think, but, but, but just latch on to this. The, the, the pathway to victory is accessed by faith while implemented by action. And so whether you happen to be playing offense or defense at any particular time in your walk with God, I promise you two things must be going on for you to have victory. And that is that you will be accessing certain realities, we'll see what I mean by that in a minute, by faith, while also implementing certain realities by action. So both your inward faith in God through Jesus Christ, as well as your outward behavior, what the Bible calls obedience, empowered by the Spirit, are necessary in order to have victory, again, whether you're in a defensive mode or an offensive one. So let me show you what I mean. Let's begin with defense. Now, before I give you the the, the point on defense here, what I want you all to know is that when I talk about having a defensive posture in the Christian life, I hope we all realize that I'm talking about battling the onslaught of sin and temptation. It's battling the onslaught of our flesh when you and I feel most tempted. When you and I are struggling with sin, give me a head nod that you understand this, that's when we need a defensive posture in order to ward off sin. And it's usually sins of the flesh, our temptation to lie, when we know we should be truthful, our temptation to not to be faithful to a friend or a spouse or to not be selfless in our treatment of others, or to not be patient with our kids. Ever struggle with that one? Or or to not honor God with our money, or not honor God with our body or with our mind. Think of whatever your Achilles heel is, and that's what I want you to have in mind right now as we talk about a defensive strategy to winning battles. Now, with that in mind, Look at verse 24 of Galatians 5. We're only going to look at three verses today. 24, 25, 26. And that completes this chapter. So cactus and venue. Uh, Look at verses 24, just 24. And this gives us our defensive strategy. It says, and those who belong to Christ Jesus, now here it is, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So in order to have to have battle-worn victory from the defensive end of things, what the Bible says here is that we need to crucify the flesh. Now, now folks, that's an interesting way of saying things, isn't it? I mean, if you were having a Starbucks with somebody after church today and they said, you know what, I just got to confess to you, I'm struggling with pornography, or I'm struggling with lying, or I'm struggling with anger toward my kid, and you looked at your friend and you said, well, you know, it's really simple. The Bible just says crucify the flesh. How many of you would actually say that to your friends? I I don't think many of us would. I, I never hear Christians say that. I never hear a Christian say, well, it's easy, Jamie, just crucify the flesh. But here's the deal. If you were having a Starbucks with Paul the Apostle (laughs) and you said, I need help defeating this sin, you know what he would say to you? It's easy. Crucify the flesh. And so there's got to be something in there for us that's more substantive than we think. It's interesting. The Greek word for crucify there is the Greek word starao, and it means exactly what you think it means. It's not magic here, it just means to kill. To put to death, to make something cease to live, to crucify. What is interesting is that the tense that this verb is in, in the original Greek language that the New Testament was written in, is the kind of tense, now, now don't miss this, that denotes a completed action in the past that also requires present or continual action now. And so the tense of the verb is something that denotes has already been done. In other words, Christ has died for us in our sins. And Romans 6 tells us that when he died, we died with him. That that, that we put our sin to death when Christ was on the cross. We've identified with him in his death. So in a sense, we are crucified already to sin, but because we still do battle sin, we need to continue to trust and act in its reality in order, in the reality of our death, in order to access the power of God. And so in one sense, we're already crucified, but in another sense, we need to daily die. And though this might sound confusing to you or even nonsensical, I would submit to you that it's really not. I would submit to you that we have this understanding in many other areas of life, and therefore we get it. So, for instance, marriage. If you're married here this morning, or at Cactus and Venue, you're married, you know that marriage is, in one very real sense, a past-completed act. When you got married, you stood at an altar, or Vegas, or wherever it was that you got married... Vegas counts, and, 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 and when you, because God was there, that's the only way God shows up in Vegas is for marriages. I just thought of that too, by the way. Had, first service didn't get that one. When you got married, God was there, and when you said, I do, at the altar, that was it. It was a completed action in which you are now married. But as we all know, you still need to wake up every day and affirm your commitment to your spouse and act upon it for your marriage to be good, right? So it's a past action that requires present tense activity for it to be as good as you want it to be. So now apply this to the Christian life in your flesh. What the Bible says is in order for you and me to have victory in the defensive end of the Christian life, we need to deeply believe that we have been crucified with Christ, that he died for our sins and that we died with him when we came to believe. But then, moment by moment, we also need to affirm our death through faith and then act upon it when we are most tempted. And don't miss that we're talking about crucifying the flesh, not subduing it, not maintaining it, not trying to manage it, not trying to tame it, not trying to control it. No, that's what we do with unruly children. When it comes to the flesh, what the Bible says you and I need to do is kill it. It needs to become dead in order for us to have victory. And and so how does this work? You might be asking, what does this really entail? Go back to our main point, point number three. That's really critical. Maybe now you'll see how this works. When I said that we need to access certain realities by faith and then implement certain realities by action, now apply this to verse 24. When it comes to you and me being dead to sin, whenever we're faced with sin, if we're going to access this reality by faith, you have to affirm five words right in that moment when you're most tempted. You know what those five words are? I am dead to that. So whatever it is that you're facing, whatever dragon is against you, you must muster up the faith that God has given you that he's blessed you with. Romans 12, 3 and 4 said that we've all been blessed with a certain measure of faith. So you you, you, you dig deep and through the faith that you have in Christ, you look that sin in the face and you say, I am dead to that. And through accessing by faith, God will give you strength. But then at the same time, you also need to implement action and, and not move any closer toward that sin or that temptation. In other words, you don't want to feed your soul with that temptation. You need to make sure that behaviorally you're keeping your distance. So how many of you have ever been to a, a zoo? Raise your hand if you've been to a zoo. Cactus venue, raise. I feel sorry for some of you. You don't want to raise your hands. Look, we've all been to the zoo. How many of you have ever been to a national park? Let's see if we can get your hand up now. National Park, good. When you're at the zoo or the national park, you see signs like these. Look up here on the screen. You see signs that say, please do not feed the animals. And then that more ominous sign at the national park that says, please do not feed the bears. Now let me ask you a question. Why is it at the national park you don't want to feed the bears? Anybody know? Because if you give bears food, they're going to want more food and they're going to come at you to get more food and when you run out of food what are they going to eat? You. <laughs> so I know it's not funny but every year at Yellowstone you know, they, 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 you all go to Yellowstone National Park, they give you a pamphlet and every year big bold do not approach the buffaloes, do not feed the bears and invariably every year at Yellowstone somebody gets attacked or eaten by a bear. But it's not the person who stayed in his car. It's not the person who was behind the fence. It was the photographer getting too close. Or it was the person that said, oh, a cuddly bear, a cuddly little buffalo. And they get too close. And when you get too close, it's going to attack you. And you see, it's the same way with our sin. We we sometimes say, well, I'm dead to that. I'm dead to that. And we're, we're right up close to it. And we're feeding it. And we're playing with it. And before you know it, it's going to bite you and maybe even devour you. And and so God says, access by faith, I am dead to that, implement by action, keep your distance. And you got a good defensive posture towards sin and toward having victory in your battle. I'm a lot like you guys. I struggle with lots of things in my, my daily life when it comes to uh, wanting to honor God. I've confessed in the past that one of the things I struggle with is honoring God with my eating, I, especially as I get older. I, I, I love to eat. In fact, it's pathetic. There'll be times that I'm thinking about lunch during breakfast and din- dinner during lunch. It, it's, it's awful. I mean, how, how can you be halfway through lunch and going, I'm, I'm running out of food, I wonder what's for dinner? I mean, that is a terrible place to be. And, and, and literally, I, I, I wrestle with that, and I battle it. And, you know, Josh McDowell once said that he just looks at food and gains weight. And I feel like I'm the same way. I've not been blessed with a great metabolism. To boot, I use food to deal with negative emotions. That's the non-funny part of it. I come home after a day of obedience and honoring God, and I'm anxious. I'm maybe even angry, and so I'll sit in front of the TV, and, and I'll just eat as a way to deal with negative emotions. N- neither of those things honor God. Overeating doesn't and anxious eating do not honor God. And, and after being a Christian now for 33 years, I'm well aware of that. And so every day I wake up, I, I really do ask God to give me discipline, grace, and strength to win the battle when it comes to not overeating or even wrongly eating when it, when it comes to my life. And, and I gotta tell you, the days that I have victory, and and, and you might, not seem like it looks like it, but I have been having some victory lately. The, the days that I have victory, I'm telling you, I'm doing these two things. I mean, it's not about diets. It's not about calories. For me, it's my spiritual walk with God. I, I was at a restaurant Friday morning. This is a true story. And, and I was with some men, and we were ordering breakfast in the line there. And, and the guy who was paying, you know, ordered first. And, and he said, uh, he said I'll, I'll take a short stack of banana walnut pancakes and a side of sausage. I thought, that sounds so good. <laughs> oh my gosh, I mean, that's gotta be about 800 calories, but that sounds incredible. That, that would set me going till at least 11 o'clock in the morning, I thought that's... <laughs> but I, I walked up to the plate, saying to myself, I am dead to that. And I said, I'll take a three egg white omelet with spinach and mushrooms, a little bit of Taylor ham, and that's it. And it tasted exactly like you think it would. It was awful. But I did feel good. I felt victorious. Now, let's fast forward. Say say I'm doing that all day. I'm dead to that. I'm dead to that. I'm winning battles. And then I go to Bashes on my way home. We live right near Bash's. And, and I'm in I'm in Bashes and I'm going down the chips aisle. And I'm putting potato chips, Lays, and I'm putting, you know, Cheez-It crackers and tortilla chips and salsa all in my basket. And all the while I'm doing that, I'm saying, I'm dead to that, I'm dead to that, I'm dead to that. Is that going to work? No. Because I'm going to go home and I'm going to get anxious at night and I'm going to walk to the closet. I'm dead to that, I'm dead to that, I'm dead to that. And I'm going to eat. See, it takes both. It takes accessing by faith. I am dead to that. As well as implementing by action my obedience kicking in for me to have victory in my defensive posture. And though it's funny when we deal with things like food, here's the cool thing. This works in the more serious areas too. This works when you have temptation to not be faithful to your spouse. This works when you're being tempted to shame or rage on your kids in such a way that you know it might have long-term consequences. This works when you're tempted to to give up at work because you just hate your job and somehow God needs to give you joy. This works in every area of life and the defensive end of things. I am dead to that. And, And then implementing by action. The Bible says, greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. And so greater is the Holy Spirit who lives in us. We can truly do these things. Now, this is only half the battle. But for as we all know, simply having a tough defense is not enough to win games. We also need to have a spectacular offense. And thankfully, God has given us one. So lo- look at the, the last two verses of Galatians 5. I'm actually going to give you verse 16 because it's kind of a setup. And then look at verses 25 and 26. Th- these, again, are arguably some of the most important scripture- verses in all the Bible. Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Then skip down to verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Now, obviously it doesn't take a theologian to realize that the key to understanding what's being laid out in this passage here is that twice-repeated phrase, walk by the Spirit, right? And it's preceded in verse 25 by the phrase, live by the Spirit, that has confused some people before, like live by the Spirit, walk by the Spirit, but, but it's really not all that hard. Living by the Spirit, just so you know, is simply affirming that this is Christians we're talking about, because Christians do live by the Spirit by just being Christians. So if you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives in you, that's God's gift to you, and in that sense, you live by by the Spirit, So a better translation here would actually be, since we live by the Spirit, let us walk by the Spirit. But notice that it's not just enough then to live by the Spirit or belong to Christ. In order to have victory in any offensive way, you and I need to walk by the Spirit. So what does that mean? It's interesting, there's actually two different Greek words used here in verses 16 and then verse 25 that our English translation translates walk In verse 16, it's the normal, everyday Greek word for walk, the Greek word peripateo, used some 90 times in the New Testament. And this word means what you think it means. It just means to walk. When it says that Jesus and his disciples walked to Galilee, peripateo. But it's using it here in Galatians 5 verse 16 in a spiritual sense that simply means that if you and I are ever going to win battles, we need to get moving with the Holy Spirit. We need to go somewhere with the Holy Spirit in order to have victory. But then in verse 25, it uses a much less common Greek word for walk, the Greek word stoikeo, used only five times in the New Testament, that has a much more precise meaning, now dial into this, in that it means to walk as to follow a course or path, to walk in a series or row. Kind of like marching in line, if you've ever been in high school band or in the military. The idea is that you're following a particular path or course, that you're setting your sights on something ahead of you and allowing it to guide your steps, whether it be the band director or the drill sergeant. So I like how the New International Version translates this verse here when it says, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. There it is. Or or even better yet, the New English Bible, which is an older British version, translates it this way. If the Spirit is the source of our life, and he is, let the Spirit also direct our course. So you get the idea. Walking by the Spirit, stoikeo, entails both. Looking ahead to something on the horizon and then adjusting your steps... To make sure that you fall in line. And the obvious idea here is that as we walk by the Spirit, we are looking ahead to the things of the Spirit, and that as we do, we keep in step with the things that we see. You tracking with me? But then we got to ask, what do we see? As we look To the Spirit, what does the Spirit reveal to us? And here is the key. This is the whole key to having a great offensive strategy. And that is that the Spirit's primary role is to point us to Jesus and show us that he is more beautiful and attractive than anything that our flesh could ever put before us. As you and I somehow learn. To look to the Holy Spirit, we'll talk about how to do that in just a second, but as we discipline our souls, John Piper talks about training our souls to, to desire the things of God, the Holy Spirit's job, and he will do this for you, is to reveal the beauty and majesty of Jesus more and more to you so that you actually have more love for him than even your own sin. So imagine being more in love with Jesus than your money or your greed, more in love with Jesus than your anger toward others, more in love with Jesus than the petty differences that are going on in your marriage right now, more in love with Jesus than your dead-end job, more in love with Jesus than that besetting sin that's been nipping at your heels for decades. I mean, just think right now about all the things that drag you down in your flesh and ask yourself, what would happen if there was a power and a love within that was so potent that it could actually override the desires and lures of my flesh? Because you see, that's the problem right there, folks. Christians don't like to hear this because it feels awfully defeatist. But I'm telling you, any time that we sin, any time we cave, At the end of the day, God says it's because you're more in love with your sin than me in that moment. And I know that's hard to hear, but it's true. It's an issue of affections. That if we had more affection for God, deep within our soul, if we truly loved him, and he was our all in all, in that moment, I'm telling you, you would not choose to sin. Why? Because you're more in love with Jesus But then you ask the question, well, how do I become more in love with Jesus? You got to keep in step with the Spirit. Because that's God's promise to you. The Spirit is the one who's going to point you to Jesus and get your soul and your heart to be more in love with Him than anybody else. This is really good theology. J.I. Packer calls the Holy Spirit the shy person of the Trinity. Isn't that cool? The shy person of the Trinity. And he says that because the Holy Spirit's job is, best we can tell from the scriptures, is that when we keep in step with him and look to him, he points us to Jesus. He he says, look to God's son. Look at how beautiful and powerful majestic and awesome he is. He is your sufficiency in life. And so his job, as you keep in step with him, is to point you to your deepest need. If you don't believe me, look at how Ephesians 3, verses 16 and 17 say this. This seals the deal for me. It says, to be strengthened with power through his spirit, in your inner being. So again, we're strengthened through the Holy Spirit in our inner being. Why? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So there it is. As you and I learn to walk in the Spirit, as we keep in step, allowing Him to direct our course, He will, by the very nature of doing that, help us fall more in love with Jesus than even the things around us. And talk about a spectacular offense. I'm telling you, when you're in that sweet spot, there is no stopping you. And and so how do we access the Spirit's power in this way? How do you and I keep in step with the Spirit? How do we focus on the horizon in such a way that we are truly uh, focusing on the things of God? You you know, this is where many of the old-time disciplines come into play. I I wish I had some, some, some silver bullet for you, but there really isn't one. This is where the hard work, moment by moment, Each day comes into play. Look up here on the screen. I'll just give you four W's to get you thinking. Imagine what would happen if on Monday morning you woke up tomorrow and you said, I'm going to monitor my day through the four W's. I'm going to monitor my day through worship, word, works, and wealth. That that as I go through today, the audit I'm going to do of my soul is that at any given moment, what am I worshiping? At every given moment, what truth am I allowing into my soul and where is that truth coming from? At any given moment, what works are exuding from my life? What kind of obedience am I displaying? And at any given moment, where is my wealth going? Because you know where your treasure is, there is your heart as well. I would submit to you that those are four things, at the very least, those are just four, that, that, that are critical to you and I keeping in step with the Spirit. Let me just take, for example, worship. You know, the, one of the biggest problems today with worship, Bill, you, you, you will agree with this, is that most people, Christians today, think of worship as singing songs on Sunday morning. I'm telling you right now, if you went up to Troy and said, hey, good worship, Troy, you know, and good way to sing songs on Sunday morning, he's never hit anybody in his life, but he'd be really tempted to hit you. And the reason is, is because worship in the Bible is so much more than that. Worship is not singing songs on Sunday morning. Worship is anything that you bow to, anything that you bend the knee to each moment of each day. And that's why the Bible says you can worship your job, you can worship your spouse, you can worship your own self-sufficiency, you can worship culture, you can even worship your kids. We live in a day and age like that, don't we? Whereas C.S. Lewis said, anytime we take a second-place thing, even if it's a good second-place thing, and put it in first-place status in our lives, because God is the only one who should have first place, we're idol worshipers at that point. And see, Christians do it all the time. We put plenty of things before God. And so you and I walk throughout the day to the degree that we are worshiping God more than anything else is to the degree that we're keeping in step with the Spirit. And and again, I I, I know the food analogy might seem kind of silly for some of you, but when I said earlier that I'm thinking about uh, lunch at breakfast, I'm thinking about dinner at lunch, I'm telling you, when I'm in that mode or when it's 10 o'clock at night, and I'm tempted to eat a half a box of Cheez-Its because I'm anxious and I and I really don't want to take that to God, what am I doing right at that moment? I, I, I'm a glutton, <laughs> and and I'm using food as, as a source of spiritual, emotional nourishment that, that God says, I wish you'd use me that way. I, I wish you'd be worshiping me right now, Jamie. I, I, I wish your affections and your attention would be on me, Because if they were, the Spirit would be revealing to you the beauty and majesty of Christ. And it will strengthen your soul. And you'll fall more in love with Him than everything else around you. And you see, that's how it works. It works that way with the Word. When we feed our soul with the Word of God. When we monitor our works and our obedience. Where we ask where our money goes. Through worship, Word, works, and wealth. I focus my soul on the things of the Spirit. And He points me to the beauty of Jesus. And I'm telling you folks... I win battles, but it all depends on where your focus is each moment of each day, whether on the things of God or his spirit as he points you to the beauty of Christ or on the things of this world and your own flesh. I want to close this morning with an illustration from science that I think you're going to like, at least the other services have liked it. It's a video that comes from Robert Krulwich, a science correspondent for NPR, National Public Radio, in which he notes something very interesting about our behavior as human beings when we try to walk without a fixed point ahead of us. And so look up here on the screen, and then I'll come back, make a couple comments on this, and then we're going to pray and be on our way. But this will be a good way to cap off our time together. Look up here on the screen.
1: People have been curious about this for a while. So if you go back, and here's a beautiful example, to the 1920s, a young scientist by the name of Asa Schaefer asked a friend, could you put on a blindfold? I'm going to take you to the edge of a field. And he said, what I'd like you to do is walk across this field in a straight line. Just stay as straight on course as you possibly can. So, the man headed off, and here is Ace's map of what happened next. The man starts to walk, and his route, as you see here, begins to tilt ever so slightly to the right... We're going to speed this up just a bit. Notice that the blindfolded man now starts to turn dramatically, taking him back to the road where he started from, and then across the road, and then around again, and then back again, and around again. And increasingly, he's moving in smaller curls until finally he hits a tree and stops. All the while, he thought he was walking in a perfectly straight line. Strange? Well, there are many studies just like this. From 1928, here are three people who leave a barn on a very foggy day, and what they want to do is go to a point about a half mile away. Here's what happened, the map version. The barn is here. The destination is here. Now watch this. Off they go. They think they're walking straight, but instead what they actually do is they start to turn and turn and turn and end up, weirdly, back at the very place where they started, the barn. This experiment has been done in all kinds of situations. Here's another 1928 study. A man is blindfolded and then asked to jump into a lake and swim in a straight line to the other side. Now, here is where he swam. There is apparently a profound inability in humans to stick to a straight line when blindfolded or when there is no fixed point, no sun, no moon, no mountaintop, to guide them. In this last case, a blindfolded man is asked to get into a car and is told to drive in a straight line across a totally empty Kansas field. Now, the driver is not in any danger. All he has to do is hold course, but here is the map that shows what happened next. For 80 years, scientists have been trying to explain this tendency to turn when you think you're going straight. They thought maybe this is some form of handedness, like being a righty or a lefty, or maybe it's a right-left brain thing where one side of you is slightly dominant and then the dominance builds over time. Maybe it's just simple asymmetry. Some people are stronger on one side or have different sized arms or legs, but try as they might, and we're still trying these experiments, nobody has really figured out why we can't go straight.
0: Now, the uh, the point of me showing that, I just have to say this, is not for you guys to try to figure all of this out. There's some of you wackos that are going to focus on on, on this... Thing I had it happen last night, people came, well, it's the Earth's axis and tilt and all this. I'm like, no, no, there's a spiritual point in all of this. And so (laughs) if you want on your own time to try to figure those out, you can. But science has shown it's not right brain, left brain. It's not right or left handed. It's not the Earth's axis. There's something so far unexplainable in us that without a fixed point, without having something on the horizon to focus on, it's nigh to impossible to walk in a straight line. Now, now here's my point. If that's true physically, I I promise you it's true spiritually. That This is what the Bible's affirming to you and I. That, That as Christians, if we try to walk blindfolded, or even worse yet, if we try to walk with no blinders on, but walk in such a way that we're not fixed on certain things in the horizon in front of us, God says you will not walk the straight and narrow. You will walk in circles, as sadly so many Christians do you know this idea of having something on the horizon and even the right thing is all over the scriptures in Hebrews chapter 12 it says let us fix our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith here in Galatians 5 it says you know focus on the things of the spirit other scriptures talk about fixing our sights on eternity and on heaven isn't it interesting it it never says look to the ground in front of you <laughs> the scriptures always say have something godlike on the horizon And as you do that, you will keep in step with the Spirit. It's stoikeo, it's keeping in line with the Spirit. And that's where worship and the Word and works and even monitoring your wealth, because where your treasure is, there's your heart. That's exactly what those things are designed to do. And so I I hope today you're very, very encouraged as we end this discussion because we're going to move on next week to move into chapter 6 of Galatians, our final chapter, but please be encouraged here today. What we've learned over the last couple of weeks is that as a follower of Jesus Christ, you are primed for victory. You are saved for all of eternity, and he's never going to let go of you. As Galatians says, you belong to Jesus Christ. You now have life in the Spirit. That is yours right now, no matter how defeated you might feel. And you and I are primed to be able to win battles as we develop a tough defense. I am dead to that, and I'm not feeding the bear anymore. And we're primed for a spectacular offense as we learn to walk in the power of the Spirit. I can't promise you you're going to win every battle. I I wish I could. I can't. I can promise you as you apply these things, you'll win more battles than not. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the clear uh, understanding of your word that as we take a deep look at it and then apply these things vigorously to our lives that, Father, you you do come through with your promises and, and deliver for us the things that our souls desire. And Lord, if we were to extend this discussion here this morning, either here or at Cactus or Venue, we we would also realize how difficult these things are to apply to our lives, that these are certainly things easier said than done. But Lord, I dream about what would happen is if five or 6,000 people who call this church home, of which each individual here is a part of, were to start applying these things Monday through Saturday in their daily lives. What level of holiness and love and goodness and grace would exude from this place through your people. So God, do that in us, we pray. And Lord, as we experience uh, victories, small and big, I pray that those would give us joy and satisfaction, sufficiency in you, and that as we sang earlier, that that would allow us to hold fast, to keep on keeping on, to stay in the ring with you through anything and everything. That's our goal. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And we all say together, Amen. amen. God bless you guys. Have a great day.